0: I want to give you the theme of Psalm 46 before we get into it any further. The theme of Psalm 46 is this. God is our immediate help when we are in a tight squeeze. God is our immediate help when we are in a tight squeeze. The word trouble in this psalm, and we're going to read it in just a moment, Uh, In fact, in verse 1, he talks about a very present help in trouble. The word trouble there in the Hebrew is a word that means to be restricted, to be tied up in a narrow, tight place. Or as my mother used to say, is to be between a rock and a hard place. Now, when you get between a rock and a hard place, you're in a tight squeeze. And that's what Psalm 46 deals with. I think the psalm was probably written in the 7th century B.C. when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, brought this huge army against Jerusalem. Now we're not really familiar with um, the military strategy of that culture of that day, but let me just kind of help you to see. They brought these huge armies to the, to the city and they camped outside the walls for months, sometimes even years. And so this army under Sennacherib was camped outside the city of Jerusalem and later laid siege to the city, huge army under Sennacherib, but in the providence of God and in the deliverance of Almighty God, they were spared the Assyrian invasion, and Jerusalem survived. I was looking through some stuff the other day, and I, I, uh, some of you English teachers probably can... Uh, know know the poem by Lord Byram called The Destruction of Sennacherib. I wasn't going to read this tonight, but it's so dynamic I want to read it. Listen to it. The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming with purple and gold. By the way, the Monday moguls happen to be purple and gold. You know where you get the word mogul? Well, that's another story. And the sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea when the blue wave rolls nightly on deep Galilee. Like the leaves of the forest when summer is green, that host with their banners at sunset were seen. Like the leaves of the forest when autumn hath blown, that host on the morrow laid withered and strown. For the angel of death spread his wings on the blast, and breathed in the face of the foe as he passed. And the eyes of the sleepers waxed deadly and chill, and their hearts but once heaved and forever grew still. And there lay the steed with its nostrils all wide, but through them there rolled not the breath of his pride. And the foam of his gasping lay white on the turf, and cold as the spray of the rock-beating surf. And there lay the rider, distorted and pale, with the dew on his brow and the rust on his mail. And the tents were all silent, the banners alone, the lances unlifted, the trumpet unblown. And the widows of Asher are loud in their wail, and the idols are broken in the temple of Baal. And the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, hath melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. Man, what a poem. Wish I could say something like that without having to read somebody else's. You know what Lord Byron is doing? He's telling us why Psalm 46 was written, is that somehow in this this protection and security of God, Jerusalem was spared, not because of the might of the army, but because of the might of the Almighty. What a great poem is, what a great psalm is 46. Martin Luther made Psalm 46 the theme song of the Reformation. He gave it a name. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And when John Wesley died, He died quoting the words of Psalm 46. Must be pretty powerful, I would say. Now, let me give us an overview of the psalm and then we'll deal with it. The overview of this psalm is this, that there are three situations in life that occur and some reactors that are provided for these situations. In other words, when these situations occur, there are some ways to respond or ways that the psalmist said he responded. The first situation has to do with an upheaval in nature, a natural phenomenon. Verses 2 and 3, let's read it. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Now what he's talking about is the upheaval that occurs in the natural, in the natural phenomenon of life, in, in earthquakes and floods and, and, and the like. And he said the response that we make to that is that we will never fear. There's a second situation, and it's in verses 4 through 7, and this is the situation Civil disturbances, cities under attack. Read with me. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Now what he's talking about is civil civil disturbances, the foundations of one's existence tottering and are shaken and the response is we will not be moved. And then he refers to a third thing that the psychologist would refer to as post battle syndrome that is this anxiety or shell shock that comes from a stressful life. We would call it depression or anxiety. And it's referred to in verses 8 through 11. Come behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He makes the bow and cuts the spear in two. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire, cease striving and know that I am God I will be exalted among the nations I will be exalted in the earth the god the lord of hosts is with us the god of jacob is our stronghold and the response to this post battle syndrome is I will not strive I will I will rest I won't sweat it and why is because The Lord is our refuge. Now let me break this down and we'll just take a quick look at it. First of all, natural phenomenon. It seems like the Psalm 46 could be written for the last five years in this country. Earthquakes and floods and fire. Now what Psalm 46, now watch this, what Psalm 46 deals with is this is that there is the possibility that the worst that can happen to man's world may happen and God will permit it. Now he's not saying, he's not predicting that it will happen for nobody can really predict accurately when there'll be a flood or an earthquake or even a war. He is not predicting that it will happen, but he reckons with the fact that disaster is a possibility in man's life on the earth and that, he, and that this God is not a defense against the worst that may happen. He is a defense in spite of the worst that may happen. And this God we know does not secure us against disaster, but this God secures us within disaster. And he doesn't say we will not fear that the earth will be removed. He says we will not fear though the earth be removed. One of the, most, one of the greatest discoveries that man will make in life is that the love of God is not some wall that stands between him and disaster but rather the love of God is this source of strength and courage in the midst of disaster. I remember reading uh, from Lucado's um, book that he went back uh, one time to uh, be with a friend who was burying his father. His friend was burying his father. And he went back to be with him during that time, his best friend from high school, and he said they were just kind of sitting around reminiscing one night, uh, the day before the funeral, and, and this friend said, you know, when I was a little kid, one of the things I remember is that, a, that, that one night late, um, and then the West Texas storm came up, and he said the wind was blowing, and it seemed like a hurricane, you know, it was like a tornado was coming. He said, We were all kind of crouched down, my family, under a mattress, and we were, we could, I said, I could see my father silhouetted, silhouetted against the light and the, when the lightning would come. And he said, I decided I'd run you know, and just run and get in there where my father was and stand beside him for the thought occurred to me that the safest place for me was next to my dad. Now the psalmist says... That, the, that this God who secures us is a God who does not secure us from the storms of life. He secures us within the storms of life, and so the safest place we can be is next to Him and not be afraid. Second, he talks about civil disturbance. A city is in upheaval. Now I want you to watch this because you know, this is a part of the, um, um, the symbolism of the Psalms, Psalm 46 in particular. That uh, The city represents the religious security, the foundations of their society. The city is a reference to Jerusalem. Now to the Jew, Jerusalem was the place of security. Their religious security for the temple was there their national or political security because it was the capital of the Jewish world so that as long as, the t- as Jerusalem stood, that city, security and safety they could enjoy. Now what he's saying is this, is that there are times, there, there, there comes in, in every life those moments when a person's security is shaken maybe political security. Um, I don't think it, you know, you'd have to label me as a prophet of doom to, uh, to, to say tonight that, that uh, some of us are somewhat concerned about uh, the foundations on which this nation was established or beginning to be, you know, to totter and to be threatened. In fact we are witnessing um, in our lifetime remarkable change that threatens everything that as as that we have all as we have always known it you know what I'm saying um, things are different than uh, you know they used to be and that's somewhat disconcerting for some of us well, let me let me let me share with you and this is um, uh, totally on the on the side but to, to just give you an idea of the change that has occurred in your lifetime, somebody put a pencil to it and, and condense the history of my, the world, the history of creation, to one year, 365 days. And on this line of time where uh, the world has, you know, has been from its beginning to, to this present time, on a timeline, Equal to 365 days. You all understand what I'm trying to do here? Condense the history of the world into one year period of time. Okay. You know when you dis- when we discovered fire, it'd be November the 19th. Now there's January 1, and we've come all the way around to November 19th to discover fire. I mean, what were we doing for, for the rest of the times? Good, good question. On December the 29th of that year, if we could condense uh, time into one year, December the 29th, we entered into what is called the Agricultural Revolution. On December the 31st, at 11.30 a.m., the Greek Empire was established. At 1.30... PM on December the 31st, the Roman Empire was built. At 9.30 p.m., we invented the printing press. At 10.05, we entered the Industrial Revolution. At 11.45, 15 minutes before the end, we invented the automobile and the airplane. At 11.55, the computer. At 11.58, the heart transplant. And 11.59, a man walked on the moon. Now what this means is, is that most of what we have and have discovered in the history of the world, we have discovered in your lifetime and mine. Did you know that the top 5% of the greatest thinkers in the world by the year 2000 are in middle school tonight. And that 85% of all of the jobs by the year 2000 will require efficiency in computers. You talk about change. Luce Bull um, writes a column, I read it every day in the Dallas Morning News, He talks about this upheaval that we are experiencing in our lifetime as a result of the political and the democratic uh, and the uh, revolution of democracy, the rise of the Pacific powers. And what he's driving at at the end of this, he's he's saying this, that if you are content with life as it is now, you better get ready for your life to be shaken because everything we, we have always known it is come and lose. Now what the psalmist is saying is this. What's going to happen when your faith is shaken to its very core? How are you going to respond? I mean, what if you were, I posed this question in my Sunday school class this morning, what if you were my friend living in Seminole, Texas, and you knew that in the next five years your precious daughter would be killed and lev- and 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 she leaves two small children your wife or your spouse was going to die of cancer of the tongue horrible death your other surviving daughter driving to school one morning with their grandchild with your 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 grandchild in the car and and a car comes across a intersection and kills your grandchild her child Two weeks later, her husband comes in and says he's in love with another woman. Now, what if you knew that these things are going to happen to you in the next five years? Would you still be a believer? Let me tell you what is harder than having enough faith. You know, People are always talking about, do you have enough faith for God to perform a miracle in your life? But I'm asking you tonight, do you have enough faith to believe in God if He doesn't? And I hear people say all the time, well, if you have enough faith, God would heal you. Let me ask you this. Do you have enough faith if He doesn't heal you? That's the big question. That's the tough question. The question is not, is this God big enough to perform a miracle? The question is, do I have enough faith to believe in my God when He doesn't perform a miracle? Now, Psalm 46 deals with that. He says, when these things under which that have been the underpinning of our life, these things on which we have always based our faith, when they totter and are shaken, what am I going to do? I'm not going to move. I'm going to remain the same. I'm going to abide. And then he comes to this post-battle fatigue. We're just tired. Tired of the whole thing. Um anxious, nervous, and depressed. And this is how he's, he's this is his response. He says, I'm just going to relax and stop struggling. Now I want to give you pr- three practical thoughts about God's strength and then we're out of here. Three practical thoughts about God's strength and we're out of here from this, t- this text. Number one, God's strength is, immediately available. This psalm says God is with us. The God we believe is the God whose name is Emmanuel, God with us. And he not only says that God is with us, but he calls him the God of Jacob our refuge. And what he means by that term and that symbolism is, is that what God is to any man, he is to every man. Now what was this, what was God to Jacob? If he's the God of Jacob and he is our refuge, what does that mean, he's the God of Jacob? Well, first thing I think about of Jacob is on his way, on the, the flight he was um, you know, making from his brother. He comes out to this little desert town out there near Bethel, and he goes to sleep. He makes a stone for a pillow and lies down to sleep. And in the night, he has this dream. And in this dream, there is this ladder that's suspended between heaven and earth. And on this ladder are angels descending and ascending. And what the vision is, and what the dream is about, and in that culture God spoke to people through dreams, what that dream was about was, is that God was making himself an abiding reality to Jacob. Now, I don't know whether this is, you know, uh, theological or not, but I have a feeling that Jacob never forgot that night and that vision and that dream, and what he saw in that was is that God was as near to him as the ladder, immediately available. God is our refuge. What God was to any man, God is to every man. Now watch this. There is nothing in this narrative In this Bible, there is nothing in this Bible which is not capable of being reproduced in our lives. Did you you get that? I figured you'd be up high fiving on that one. I mean, you, you know what I just said? That there is nothing in this Bible that is not capable of being reproduced in your life. Now you've got to believe that. So that if I turn in this narrative and I find out that this God is with me, who is the God of Jacob, who is an immediate reality to him, heaven and earth connected by a ladder, angels descending and ascending, what that says to me is that that can be reproduced in my life regardless from regardless of where I am or from whom I'm running. You know what I'm saying? All right, number two. This strength that's immediately available is overpowering, overpowering. His power is greater than our problem. The question is not how big is my problem, the question is how big is God? That's the question. The question is not how difficult is my life. The question is, do I believe that God is greater than my difficulty? I think that required reading, I said this the other night, I was out speaking to the BSU, and I'll say it again. I think required reading ought to be Isaiah 40 for everybody. You know what Isaiah 40 does? Isaiah 40 talks about the greatness of God. This is what it says about it. He's so great that he measured out the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. Now get that picture. That God is so great he measures the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. He is so great that he marked off the heavens with a span, that is the distance between the thumb and the little finger of a normal man's hand. To God, heaven is as wide as your hand. That's how great he is. He is so great, he said, that he weighed out the dust of the earth on a horizontal beam. Now, if you're, you know, young and didn't grow up on a farm, you don't know what a horizontal beam is. But a horizontal beam is what we used to weigh the cotton sacks with. And you know, these horizontal beams We put a hundred pound weight on one side and a cotton sack on the other. And if it balanced, you had a hundred pounds of cotton in there. He said that God is so great that he measures the earth on a horizontal beam. He's so great that nobody has communicated to him the ABCs of right and wrong. He's so great that he holds the earth on three fingers of his hand. God is so great that were a man to take all the, the, the trees and the famed forests of Lebanon and all the beasts in the forest for a sacrifice, it would be an unworthy and unacceptable act of worship. He's so great that all the races of the men are as nothing to him or less than nothing to him. That doesn't mean that he doesn't care for them. It means that they are no threat to him. He's so great, the the prophet says, that he sits above the circle of the earth and all its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He's so great that he stretched out the heavens with the ease of an Arab stretching out his tent at night. And he is so great that he created all the stars, named every one of them by name, and he marshals them every night together in the heavens, and he is so great none of them disobey him. So every night he calls the stars by name, Fred. Gem and all of them show up. Now, now you take a you take a calculator and you figure out how many stars and just imagine how he came up with that many names. Who knows? Except that God knows all the words of, that there is. Now, what we need to do, I think, is to discover the greatness of God. That's the, the rediscover the greatness of God. Now, look at what He calls Him. He calls Him the Lord of Hosts. Let me tell you what that means. You know what the Lord of, you know what the host are, the host of the armies of heaven. He's the Lord of the armies of heaven. Now, um, we we sing on Easter. I guess it is Easter. You know, He could have called ten thousand angels to destroy the world and set Him free. But God has command of all the heavenly armies. You got somebody against you, some bully. Let me tell you, who, who, you, you know what, you've you got somebody with you that has command of the whole army of heaven, the whole battalion of, of, of armies in of heaven. That's, look at this. Now, should I be afraid if I've got on my side the commander of the armies of heaven? We need to rediscover the greatness of God. And then finally, his greatness and power is sufficient without our help. I want you to read with me verse 10 again. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Let me, let me, let me, let me say this just quickly. Put a, big, put a big circle around I because the thing that prevents, the thing that prevents God's display of himself is the big eye gets in the, play, in the way. Our eye gets in the way. Our, our, self gets in the way. Let me tell you, when we get ready, when we get to the place where we, are, we, we recognize our total helplessness, and we're willing for God to get all the glory in our life, and we surrender to that, God, will be able, God then will be free to move in and do some work. Not until. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for the word of Psalm 46 to our heart. We need to hear it, Father, to be encouraged by it, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Now, I wonder if there's tonight, there is a a personal decision that you need to make public. We invite you to come on invitation tonight, an invitation for you to give your life to Christ, or rededicate yourself to Him, or place your life in the fellowship of our church. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.